Well, take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We will continue our study this morning of the kingdom parables. And this morning I want to address with you the parable of the wheat and the tares. I will be reading verse 24 through 30 and then verse 36 through 43. Let's ask God's blessing upon us. Now, Lord, come and bless the reading of your word, the preaching of it. Now, Lord, give us receptive hearts. Lord, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, Lord, wish to learn, to grow in grace. Lord, to have our knowledge expanded, to have our practice, Lord, deepened. And Lord, just that we might walk before you, Lord, glorifying your name, Lord, as your sons and daughters. So bless this morning the preaching of the gospel and found in this text and give us, O Lord, a great earnest expectation of the success and victory of the kingdom of God, Lord, in the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 24. And Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now verse 36. And then he left the crowds. And went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels." So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, beloved, the parable of the wheat and the tares is a parable that is concise. It's straight to the point. And it is paramount in our own day that we understand the meaning of this parable if we are to make sense of even our own day. Like the parable of the sower, this parable addresses the kingdom of God in the world. The relationship that the kingdom of God has in this world before judgment day, before the, the consummation of all history, when the world ends, when Jesus comes back and settles all accounts, and there are those that will be cast into everlasting perdition and those that will go on to glory 
in heaven. This is the, 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 the purpose of these kingdom parables is, or the, a, some of the portion of the, some of these parables is to address how the kingdom of God works and practices and has its place in the world. The parable of the sower, we saw how subjective the word of God is preached and put in our hearts, but then the objective nature of it is that it bears fruit. There's things that are recognizable to the one that truly believes the gospel and repents of their sins and turns to Jesus Christ. They begin bearing fruit and some much fruit. But all Christians bearing fruit, that is in the world, they are recognizable. They are distinguishable. Even in this parable, though a different emphasis, yet there is a very objective nature to the kingdom of God in the world. It's objective that there is something about the reality that exists when we embrace Jesus Christ and we live out our days before the face of our God and in this world. We, we, believe, uh, we believe differently than the world believes. We live differently. We practice various moral concepts differently than the world. The world may do it for the sake of just doing it and being kind and good. We do it for the ultimate purpose of glorifying our Father in heaven. So we are different. And what does this parable teach us? What's the purpose of it? Well, notice that it's a parable also that Jesus gives an explanation to. He gives the interpretation of it. The disciples came to him and, and asked, Lord, what did you mean by this parable? And Jesus, in explaining to his disciples this parable, teaches us that each of these parables stand on its own. Notice that in the parable of the sower... The seed is the word of God. In the parable of the wheat and tares, the seed are the sons of the kingdom. The field is the world. That the sower is the son of man. Now, in the parable of the sower... Though Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately sows the seed in the hearts because human preachers cannot do that, though human preachers are called upon and ordained to go out and preach the kingdom of heaven, but only Jesus Christ can make Christians. Only Jesus Christ can make a true son and daughter of the kingdom. No human preacher can accomplish that. And so Jesus assumes to himself that role. It belongs to no one else. Only Jesus Christ goes, can go out into the world. He can pillage, if you will, the ranks of Satan, call out his children, and put life into them. And then not only does he put the word in their hearts, he puts them in the world. And we're not of it, but we are in it. We are not of its philosophies. We are not of its ways, its ideologies, but we do live in the world. We have to interact with these things. And I'm sure most of us do this on a weekly basis. And yet we are not to subject ourselves, our minds and our hearts to these worldly ideologies. This parable teaches us that the kingdom of God will be successful, will be successful. It will be successful even though we have a great enemy. Jesus tells us that the enemy that sowed the tares are these weeds is the devil. 
that doesn't matter how fierce the opposition or how fierce the opposer or all of his ill intentions, that the kingdom of God will come to completion in the end and the Lord Jesus Christ will settle all accounts. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, will be successful. The parable acts, if you will, as sort of a map of history. Since the very beginning of the kingdom of God, it's faced opposition. It's faced all kinds of Pharaohs and Herods and Pilots, Judases. And yet we today remain in that stream of the kingdom of God. We're here worshiping, praising his name, sitting under the preaching of his word. Even those dear saints in China who are having to hide to do it, the church and the kingdom of God is still going forth. Christ is still sowing his children in places where there is extreme opposition. And it cannot, it cannot be stopped. And that should give all of us a tremendous amount of encouragement this morning. Whether the saints are having to hide in secret places, meet at wee hours in the morning to worship or sing God's praises, face possible execution or beheading, the kingdom of God goes forth. And it doesn't matter whether it's China, if it's the Communist Party, it doesn't matter if it's Marxist regimes, it doesn't matter if it's political ide- or, or sins that have been politically weaponized like homosexuality, what might be called the gay and lesbian movement, the transgenderism, whatever Whatever the ideology, whatever the immorality, whatever is being used in order to discourage, to stifle, to pollute, to water down the kingdom of God will not ultimately succeed. Islam is not going to stop Christianity. In fact, I read a report recently from a missionary who is secretly involved in the preaching of the gospel in those places. And he admitted that there are many coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of the harsh and militant nature of Islam to begin with. You know, they believe in discipleship by the sword and coercion and, and uh, tyranny and manipulation and violence. And that's what we're seeing in these countries where these uh, Islamists have, have migrated and planted their communities. What are we seeing? We're seeing now you, th- these, uh, this upheaval of n- un- being unable to speak any ill of Muhammad or Allah. And they're willing to hold the whole nation hostage. And how, how do they do this? They don't do it in the arena of ideas and, and debate. They do it out of the tyranny of violence. And they put fear in the hearts of the people around them to bring subjection. Even that, though, brothers and sisters, will not hinder the kingdom of God from coming to fruit in this world. So the parable addresses the success, the onward advancement of the kingdom of God. But but there's something about the parable that I want to bring to your attention that I think is very important. And that is that the parable highlights, if you will, the, the, the sower, the sower. Now, Jesus tells us that the sower 
is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That Jesus is, is, is that was Jesus' favorite name for himself. He's the Son of Man. It comes right out of Daniel 7. It comes out of Daniel 7 in that night vision that Daniel saw where the the ancient of days, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ comes up to the ancient of days and he receives to himself a kingdom. He is bestowed a kingdom. He is given a kingdom. We know that in Jesus Christ's resurrection in Matthew 28, when he comes to his disciples to, to send them out, that is now to sort of change their status to apostle and to send them out into the world, what does he say? How does he introduce the commandment to go into the world and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit? teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What is the foundation of that commandment to them? In verse 16 of Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Jesus is telling his disciples, I have been exalted. I have been exalted by my father. I am now the, 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 as Paul called him, the king of kings and lord of lords. I am over all the heavenly dom- domain and all of the earth. It is mine. And now to prove that I'm sending you, my apostles, I'm sending you out into this world that belongs to me. And you're, and you're going out and what are you going to do? You're going to make disciples of Christ. You're going to make disciples of the kingdom of God and you're going to baptize them and you're going to incorporate them into the body of the church. You're going to to teach them how to walk in my ways. The parable is son of man centered. Notice in the parable um Look at verse 24. And Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The parable itself highlights the authority and the ownership of the son of man. Whose field is it? It's Jesus's field. And what did he tell us the field represented? The world, the, the, the world belongs to Jesus. In his exaltation, he's been given, as Psalm 2 talks about, all of the desire of the nations. He's been blessed that he would be given the desire of his heart. What's the desire of Jesus's heart? What's the desire of the son of man? To see the whole world glorify his father and come under the subjection of the teaching and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. To have their hearts filled with peace and rest and righteousness. Why? Because sin destroyed it all. First John, our dear brother, Pastor Otis has talked about this. In First John chapter 3, what, is the, what does John tell us? That Jesus came to do what concerning the works of the devil? Destroy them. Destroy them. How does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? He goes out creating disciples of the kingdom. It's his field. Notice, it's not only his field, it's his enemy. It's his enemy. Notice that verse 25, while the men were sleeping, his enemy. Whose enemy? Jesus' enemy. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? They hate me, and they're going to hate you. They don't hate you for the sake of hating you. They hate you because they hate me. And they despise me. 
and they cannot tolerate anyone who loves me and wants to walk in my ways. The parable sets forth that this great enemy that we all, in, uh, that we experience and do battle with is ultimately the enemy of Jesus Christ. And he opposes Jesus Christ. He opposes everything that Jesus is building. He opposes everything that Jesus loves. He hates it all. He can't stand anything that has anything good to do with Jesus Christ. And if he's Jesus' enemy, he's our enemy. Notice what else? Notice the slaves of the landowner, and they come to him. He's in charge. The sower is the boss. He's the sovereign one. They come to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How does it have tares? And he says to them, and the enemy has done this. And do you want us to go and gather them up? Who, who gives the marching orders in the kingdom of God? The sower, the son of man. The church is not the institution or organization where men collectively come and, and create for themselves an ideology or a doctrine or a movement or a guru or any of those things. The kingdom of heaven is that place where the son of man gives the orders. He's the one that dictates the marching orders. He's the one that tells everyone what to do. <laughs> That's why the confession of faith talks about only the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of our conscience. There's only one Lord of the conscience and it's Jesus You can see, beloved, that it's his field. It, he's the one sowing. He's the one bringing forth the sons of the kingdom. He is the one who possesses the enemy. He is the one that gives the marching orders. He is the one that it says, allow both to grow until the time of the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, he's the boss of the angels, the angels do his bidding. They are his servants, Hebrews chapter 1. They are created to give service to our heavenly king and master. I love one of the prayers of the Puritans would pray, and it would be, Lord, give us the zeal of the angels. <laughs> you know, because... There's no hesitation when the Lord sends out his angels, is there? There's no question. The angels don't go, now, Lord, are you, is this really what you want? They go. And they go with a fiery zeal to accomplish exactly what their master has called them to do. And they do it with great fervor because he is the sovereign in all creation owes their allegiance to him. When the Lord sent the death angel over Egypt, what a, had to be a grimacing time. I mean, here the people of God, they're housed up, they got the blood on the mantle, they're protected from the horror that's taking place outside of Goshen. And they could hear the screams. They could hear the wailings of fathers and mothers. They could hear the wailing of children losing their firstborn parents or parent. And yet they were captured and protected under the blood that God told them to put on their doorpost. What a vivid picture of both the judgment and the mercy of God, amen? And yet, the angels go forth to do his will without hesitation. 
can only pray that I and we would have the church of God in the earth would have that same zeal to just do his will, to do his bidding. He sends them forth. And what, what's the purpose? Look at verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, his field, his seed, his enemy, his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks or everything that offends and those who commit lawlessness. Now, so we've already been introduced to the concepts, those concepts in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already heard these statements, haven't we? And yet, these are the ones the angels snatch up and away, and they are thrown into what the text says, the furnace of fire in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a reality that the kingdom of God in the earth will culminate in the day of judgment where there is a clear distinguishing of the wheat and the tares. That in this life, beloved, there are seasons when the wheat and the tares grow together and they are indistinguishable. They're similar, similar to some of the the ones who hear the word of God and for a time look fruitful, but in the end they fall away. Remember a parable sets forth one main truth. It would be vital for the Lord Jesus Christ to give his disciples at that time encouragement. Yes, you are going to face a lot of opposition. Yes, that opposition may even come from those that you thought were in your ranks. And yet, as hard as it will be, as disappointing as it will be, the kingdom of God will go forth successfully. You know, that was one of the things that Paul in Acts 20, turn there with me. Not Acts 20, yes, Acts 20. Now, Paul is in Ephesus and He has been there for several years. He's been ministering there. He's been preaching the gospel and he has planted a a church and he is leaving now this church and these elders have, have sort of walked Paul out and they are sad that he is leaving and they're showing great emotion that he is, that he's loved them and they have loved him. But notice in verse 28, It's like Paul has this understanding in his ministry's heart. And look what he says in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Uh, among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Paul understands the difficulty that the church and the kingdom of God has in the earth. It's not an easy task. It's not an easy march. Throughout history, it's been full of persecution. And even in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do to encourage his disciples? Beloved, blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are you when people revile you and accuse you and mock you. But I didn't light a lamp to be put under a bushel. I lit up your life to be visible to the world 
so that the world may see your good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. Salt and light. Paul recognizes that even the church, even the church that the apostle Paul planted, his expectation is this, that it will experience great difficulty. And we can look around us and, and we can, if we, we weaken our understanding of the kingdom of God, if we say, you know, why do we suffer so much? Why, why have we experienced so much hardship? Well, this parable answers that question. Because Jesus has an enemy. And that enemy like the kingdom of God in the earth, like the ministry of Jesus Christ savingly, is relentless. See, Jesus neither sleeps nor slumbers. The Lord is always about doing his saving work. The Lord is always about glorifying his name. The Lord is always about building up his sheep and suppressing unrighteousness. But yet, yeah, so is Satan. He doesn't sleep either. He's a spirit. He doesn't need rest. And he roams throughout the earth, Job tells us, coming to and fro, looking what? Or like Peter says, like a, a, a lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. He's always seeking to cause the righteous to stumble. In fact, the passage that comes to my mind Look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18. It's just this, the concept here. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Woe, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man, that woman, through whom the stumbling block comes. And brothers and sisters, the parable of the wheat and the tares teach us, yes, Christ, the Son of Man, is in charge. But even the Son of Man is allowing for stumbling blocks for his people. Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, these divisions, these heresies, what, what are they for? Well, they're to highlight the sons of righteousness. When the church faces difficulty, when the church faces uh, disruptions, when, when, it, and when errant theology comes into the church, what does it tend to do but test the righteous? We have to examine our theology, whether we're for or against. How do we address it? What are we going to do about it? How do we handle the circumstance? Remember, it's not the pastor that's in charge. It's not the session that is leading the show. It's the Son of Man that gives the marching orders. It's the Son of Man that's told us what to believe. It's the Son of Man who has told us who to separate from. It's the Son of Man that it commands repentance when repentance is necessary. These stumbling blocks, these tests, these, these circumstances that we find ourselves in as the, the kingdom of God marches on in history, we're faced with these challenges and, and opportunities to do what? Examine ourselves to see whether or not we be in the faith and then rise to the occasion and give allegiance to the Son of Man. We, isn't it telling how often we either oppose something or not based upon whether or not we like the person or not. But that's not the circumstance. That's not how we judge the circumstance. Remember, all things that offend, Matthew 13, 
all things that offend, all of these stumbling blocks, if you will, offend whom? Who's offended? The Son of Man. That we are not opposing first the person more than the the, the idolatry or the ideology or the, the doctrine that we are opposing this error and we must stand against it and we must call our brother to repent or our sister to repent. It's not about the friendship. It's not personal. And it might get personal. And sometimes when people are backed into a corner and they're de- commanded to repent of their, the error of their ways, sometimes they have a tendency to make it very personal. But that's not the intention. The intention is to address and deal with all of those things that are offensive to the Son of Man, to those who do not walk in his ways, to, that as he says, commit lawlessness. Remember the phrase in Matthew 7, when Jesus is dealing with those ministers, and he talks about beware of these wolves in sheep's clothing, these, these teachers of religion, if you will, the, the teachers of, of, the, of the people of God. Look, they talk big, but they are not doers of the word. And they will be disappointed on the day of judgment or on that day that they leave this earth and they stand before God and they say, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? I don't know you. You've been an offense to me and you've been a stumbling block to my people. To the kingdom of God. What are some of the applications we might make to the parable? Well, we've touched on one primarily, and that is it's, in, it's inconceivable that in a fallen world, the kingdom of God can go on without opposition. Notice the seeds that Satan that the devil sows are what? Well, they are his disciples. They are his children. And they can be found, obviously, in the world, in all of the institutions of the world, but they can also be found in the church. Sometimes, just out of this being deceived, not knowing any better. They can come in and, and have an experience and join the church and, and believe for a time that they are a, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they never have that commitment to his word and to his authority. That They never are able to give up themselves fully and totally. And therefore, they chafe under many of the righteous commandments of Jesus Christ. And they say, well, these are, these, I like these, but I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to do these. I like, you know, I, I can give these up, but I don't want to give these up. And for some time, they can, they can be members of the visible church. And yet, oftentimes when the stumbling comes, whether it be through them or some come from some other place, they are never an aid to the kingdom of God. They are only a hindrance. I have been, uh, I've experienced these meetings when blatant error and sin have been brought up and it be excused by some members of the church as if it was no big deal. That's not a good sign. There is a reason to think that that person could possibly be planted by the devil in that place to cause stumbling and offense. Paul talks about this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He talks about 
Satan loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. What's the purpose of that? So that he might, again, infiltrate and get among the ranks of the righteous. He comes in this cloak of this false righteousness in order to cause havoc and destruction. Compromise. And then Paul goes on to say, even so that the disciples of Satan, those who are unregenerate, they too cloak themselves as angels of light. And of course we know, I mean, there is no, there is no calling uh, that is more uh, visible than the calling of a pastor when things happen. Um, the, 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 the horrific, grievous uh, uh History of one apologist who recently passed away come out in his own life. And what did we learn? How sinful he was. How sinful he was. Not a child of God. Who secretly promoted evil and ungodly things. Some commentators on the text will tell us, well, even in the church, sometimes they are so closely aligned, the wheat and the tares. Remember, they look so much like each other that the Son of Man says, no, don't, don't rip them up now because by doing so, you, you, will, you will tear up the wheat. Be patient and let the wheat come to fruit and then they're recognizable. An application would be this, brothers and sisters. We have to be patient with one another too. Uh, many of the Puritan commentators, Matthew Henry, Charles Spurgeon, others would say, remember, today's tear might be tomorrow's wheat. Meaning, brothers and sisters, using our own congregation as an example, as we preach the gospel, as we call all to repent and embrace Jesus Christ and to walk in his ways and to examine ourselves, all of that consistent ministry, if you will. If there's any here this morning that's not a Christian, but are constantly falling under the conviction of that preaching, always their conscience stinging them, tell, I'm not a son and daughter of the kingdom. And then you never know that one day, they may become a Christian because the son of man is sowing the sons of righteousness in the world. Does that mean we tolerate grievous error and sin? No, it does not mean that. That's not what the purpose of this parable is for. There are other passages of scripture that, that teach us how to address that in the church. But nevertheless, this passage teaches us that in this world, there is a mixture of the righteous and unrighteous. It's not perfect. It's not perfect by any means. And in fact, as righteousness marches onward, as we seek to do the will of Jesus Christ, we should expect opposition. We should expect difficulty. And we should not be surprised when it comes to us. We then pray for diligence and courage and spiritual bravery to do what's right. We've heard the arguments, right? Right? I mean, there, I, I've heard them multiple times, even from very, very good people. Well, maybe we need to loosen up a little bit. Maybe we need to be more appealing to the, to the, the, the unbeliever if we want to grow. Maybe we need to be a part of, of compromising denominations that have, you know, looser standards so that we can experience that, that, that big tent umbrella of the kingdom of God, so to speak. These arguments come from very good people. Yeah, I heard one person say one time, a minister of the gospel, he says, you know, he says, Sunday morning is for unbelievers. Sunday morning is for unbelievers. Believers come back on Sunday night. See, 
That's where the believer, the believers come back on Sunday night and I teach them. But see, Sunday morning, it's the unbelievers. Well, beloved, listen to me. The parable, I ask you a couple of questions. Do, do the tares belong in the field? No. It was a clandestine act of the enemy to go out when? At night. That's not good. Under the cover of darkness, in secrecy, to sow the sons of darkness among the wheat. They don't belong there. Church is not for the unbeliever. Paul says that, hey, in case an unbeliever were to come into your midst, have such a ministry that they experience the glory of God that they can see that church is not man-centered at all. In fact, church is not homeschool-centered. It's not Republican-conservative-centered. <laughs> listen, it's not um, any number of things that we love to argue about. It's God-centered. It's God-centered. We don't gather, listen to me, and this is a problem among our ranks. We, we love to find people just like us. That's not the church. The church is filled with people that are born again, that love the Lord and, they, and, and un, imperfect people that want to serve the Lord, walk in his ways. They want to repent of their sins. They want to grow in grace. They want to mature. They want to mature. That's, what's, the, what's the purpose of the weed in the field? To come to maturity. That we would come to a mature understanding of our faith and love for Jesus Christ. Because the more we mature, the deeper and more sincere our praise, beloved. We should expect difficulty. We should expect schism. We should expect um, hardships to arise. And sometimes more fierce than others. And yet our commitment is to do the will of the Son of Man. Another application that we might make here is that the implication here is clear in the parable that the sons of the kingdom are not stumbling blocks. The sons of the kingdom are not lawless ones, are they? We don't want to be a stumbling block for our brother and sister. We want to be a help. We want to be an encouragement. We want to come along beside our brothers and sisters and put our arms around them and say, I praise God for you. I know you may have been only a Christian for a few years, but I can see God working in your life, and I, I pray for you. And you're an encouragement to me, and I've been a Christian for almost 35 years, and I want you to know that you are an encouragement to this old Christian. I see God working in your life. Older saints encouraging the younger saints, younger saints blessing the older saints for their faithfulness and their commitment, coming along beside and say, brothers, sisters, I tell you, you have walked with God for a long time, and you've seen many battles, and I see the scars but I praise God for you. I see the scars. I know you've been hurt. I know it's not been easy, but you stayed the course. You kept the faith. Even Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith meant me harm. Paul had a long list of disappointments in his life. Go read about them in Corinthians. Had a long list of them. And he comes to the end of the list and he says, but you know what? Praise be my Lord and Savior who has saved me and given me life and has planted me right here for this purpose. There is, listen, brothers and sisters, you're not here this morning by accident. You've been planted the Lord has sown you. He's sown you in your family, your children, your spouse, your church, your work. Marxism can, can huff and puff and try to blow the house down. It ain't working. 
It's not working. But it's not working because we have a ton of, of intellectual Republicans standing in the gap. It's because Jesus Christ controls history. And he's going to make sure that he uses all of these things to what? Mature the wheat. You need to know whom you, you need to know in whom you believe in and you need to trust him. Not just for out there, but in here. It's not accidental. The son of man is sovereign. He's growing his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know your hurts. I don't know your scars. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've got them. The encouragement comes in verse 42 and 43. Know this, that whatever you've experienced, whatever difficulty, the hardships, the scars, the, the, the letdown, whatever it may be, know that there is a day of reconciliation at the end of history and you will receive your reward just as the sons of the devil will receive their reward. Verse 42 says they will be thrown into the furnace of fire, that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the fruit of their stumbling blocks of, the, of lawlessness. But notice verse 43. This, beloved, is our encouragement this morning that the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the a promise. It's a promise. Whatever you have experienced in betrayal or whatever, Jesus Christ is going to heal it all on that day. And you're going to shine forth. Remember, remember what I said about planting you and, and being a light and not putting a bushel under it? Notice the, notice the terminology Jesus uses here. You're going to be as bright, not a candle. No, no, no. The sun, that's going to be how bright you are. That's the work he's doing in your heart. That's what he's bringing to completion. That's your hope. That's your joy. That's what you are committed to. That's why you stay the course. That's why you walk through the troubled waters. That's why you do what you do, because there's coming a day when you will shine forth as a son and daughter of righteousness to receive the reward that you have by grace. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. This world belongs to Jesus. It's his. It's not the new world orders. It's his. It's not the devil's. I don't care what you've been told. The devil doesn't own the world. It belongs to the son of man. Let's pray. Now, Father, we pray that we would take encouragement well, there's so much more that can be said, but at the same time, Father, we are, we are not a church that has, Lord, we've had unpeaceful times and you have brought us through it. And we praise your name. Lord, you've matured us, you've, you've established us, Lord, you continue to do a work. And now we have, both, we have both the old saints and the new saints. And we pray, oh God, that you would just continue to encourage both. Lord, that we would stay the course and that we would hear those words, that we would experience that promise of shining forth as the sun, Lord, in the kingdom of our Father. Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.